Chapter Fifteen of Flemington by Violet Jacob. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Chapter Fifteen. Watty has theories. Though Skirling Watty seldom occupied the same bed on many consecutive nights, his various resting places had so great a family likeness that he could not always remember where he was when he chanced to wake in the small hours. Sheds, barns, stables harboured him in the cold months when luck was good. Loanings, old quarries, wind-patches, the alder clump beyond Brechin, or the wall-side at Magdalen Chapel in the summer. Tonight he lay in the barn abutting on the tiny farmhouse at which he had sought shelter for Archie. He had met with a half-hearted reception from the woman who came to the door. Her man was away, she told him, and she was unwilling to admit strangers in his absence. She had never seen Watty before, and it was plain that she did not like his looks. He induced her, at last, with the greatest difficulty, to give shelter in her barn to the comrade whom he described as lying in extremity at the roadside. Finally, she dispatched her son, a youth of fifteen, to accompany the beggar, and to help to bring the sufferer back. Cold water revived Archie again, and he reached the barn with the assistance of the lad, who, better disposed than his mother, cut a bundle of dry heather, which he spread in a corner for his comfort. The woman looked with silent surprise at her undesired guest. She had thought to see a fellow-traveller of different condition, in company with a masterful old blackguard in the cart. Her glances and her expressive silence made Watty uneasy, but there was no help for their plight, whilst Flemington could scarcely stand. The beggar had spent the rest of that day in the barn. He was not suffered to enter the farm, nor was he offered any food, but he had enough store by him from what he had collected in Brechin for his own needs and those of his team. Archie's only requirement was the bowl of water that his companion had obtained from the boy. He lay alternately dozing and tossing on his pile of heather. His body was chilled, for his high boots had been full of the ask water, and Watty had hesitated to draw them off, lest he should be unable to get them on again after their soaking. Night fell on the barn at last. Watty slept sound, with a yellow curse muzzle against his shoulder, but he awoke towards midnight, for Archie's feverish voice was coming from the corner in which he lay. He inclined his ear, attracted by the recurrent name of Logie, which ran through the disconnected babblings, rising again and again like some half-drowned object carried along a swift stream. The darkness made every word seem more distinct. "'Listen to me,' cried Flemington. "'Logie, Logie, you do not understand. It is safe. It is burnt. Nobody shall know it from me. I cannot take your money, Logie. I will tell you everything, but you will not understand.' The beggar was holding his breath. I did not guess it was Inchbrayock. I thought it would not be Inchbrayock. Logie, I will say nothing. But I will tell you all. For God's sake, Logie, I swear it is true. Listen. Skirling Waddy could hear him struggling as though he were fighting for his life. Not to Ardgees. I cannot go back to Ardgees. I shall never tell. Never, never tell. But but I shall know where you are. They shall never know. Ah! cried Archie, raising his voice like a man in distress calling for help. It is you, Loki. My God, let me go. The beggar dragged himself nearer. The fragment of moon did no more than turn the chinks and cracks of the barn to a dull grey, and he could hardly see the outline of his companion. 
the nightmares that were tormenting Archie pointed to something that must have happened before he came by his hurt, and the injury and the chill had produced these light-headed wanderings. There were troubles boiling in his mind that he had kept behind his teeth so long as his tongue was under control. Watty wondered what was all this talk of Lord Balnello's brother. It seemed as if there were some secret between this man, suspected, as he well knew, of being an active rebel, and Flemington. Had it been light, Watty would have tried to get at the papers that Archie had spoken of as being on him when they met, for these might give him some clue to the mystery. He sat in the dark, leaning against the wall of the barn, his arms tightly folded across his great chest, his lips pursed, his gaze bent on the restless figure that he could just distinguish. All at once Archie sat up. "'Where are you?' he asked, in a high, strained voice. "'I'm here,' replied the beggar. "'Is it you, Logie?' exclaimed Flemington. "'It's myself.' Watty smoothed the roughness out of his accent as best he could. The other seemed to be hovering on the brink of consciousness. He sank back. "'It is not Logie,' he said, "'but you can tell him.' Watty leaned forward and laid his broad palm firmly and very gently on his shoulder. "'What will I tell him?' said he. Flemington turned towards him and groped about with his hot hand. "'Tell him from me that he can trust me,' he said, in a hoarse, earnest whisper. The beggar's touch seemed to quiet him. He lay still, murmuring indistinctly between snatches of silence. Once again he sat up, groping about. "'You will not forget,' he said. "'No, no,' replied Watty. He pushed him gently back, patting him now and again as a nurse might pat a restless child, and Archie grew calmer. The hand quieted him. Rough, dirty, guileful, profane as he was, without scruple or conscience or anything but the desire to do the best for himself, scurling what he had got, lodged in body or spirit, in whatsoever part of man the uncomprehended force dwells, that personal magnetism which is independent alike of grace and of virtue, which can exist in a soil that is barren of either. It may have been that which the yellow cur, with a clear vision belonging to some animals, recognized and adored, seeing not only the coarse and jovial reprobate who was his master, but the shadow of the mysterious power that had touched him. The dog, awakened by Archie's cry, found that the beggar had moved and drew closer to his side. Flemington dozed off again, and Watty sat thinking. He longed to stir him up, that he might have the chance of hearing more of his rambling talk. But he refrained, not from humane feeling, but from the fear that the talker, if he were tampered with, might be too ill to be moved on the morrow. Sleep was his best chance, and Watty had made up his mind that if it were possible to move him, he would prevail on the boy to get a beast from the nearest place that boasted anything which could carry him to Abbot Brothock. He knew that Flemington could pay for it, and he would direct him to a small inn in that place, whose landlord, besides being a retired smuggler, was a distant kinsman of his own. The matter of a passage to Leith could be arranged through the same source for a consideration. Archie should take his chance by himself. He realized with some bitterness the bright opportunities that can be lost upon a being who has no legs to speak of, for he could easily have relieved him of what money he carried had he been an able-bodied man. It was not that he lacked the force for such deeds, but that honestly was wantonly thrust upon him, because his comings and goings were so conspicuous. Notoriety takes heavy toll, 
and he had about the same chance as the king of being conveniently mislaid. He would have given a great deal for a sight of the papers that Archie carried, and, though the darkness interfered with him now, he promised himself that he would see them if the morning light should find him still delirious. He could not make out how ill he was, and, in spite of his curiosity, he was not prepared to befriend him with the chance of his growing worse. To have him dying upon his hands would be a burden too great to endure, even should it lead to no awkward questionings. He would get rid of him tomorrow, whether his curiosity were satisfied or not. He had heard enough to make him suspect very strongly that Flemington was in the pay of the rebels, as well as in that of the king. It was a situation that he, personally, could very well understand. But the night turned, and Archie grew more peaceful as the hours went by. He had one or two bouts of talking, but they were incoherent and fitful, and his mind appeared now to be straying among different phantoms. There was no more about Logie, and what he could only make out the word Ardgies, which he knew as the name of a place beyond Forfar, and, as he had discovered in Brechen that Flemington lived somewhere in those parts, he guessed that his thoughts were roving about his home. His breathing grew less laboured, and the watcher could hear at last that he slept. The moon dropped, and with her going the crevices lost their greyness, and the barn grew black. The beggar, who was a healthy sleeper, laid himself down again, and in the middle of his cogitations passed into oblivion. When he awoke, the place was light, and Archie was looking at him with intelligent eyes. They were hollow, and there were dark shadows below them, but they were the eyes of a man in full possession of his wits. "'We must get out of this place,' he said. "'I've been standing up, but my knees seem so heavy I can hardly walk. "'My bones ache, Watty. I believe there's fever in me, but I must get on. "'Damn it, man. We're a sorry pair to be cast on the world like this. "'I fear I took terrible liberties with your whisky yesterday.' "'It was a still, misty morning when the beggar, having harnessed his dogs, "'went out to look for the boy. "'When he was gone,' Flemington fumbled with his shaking fingers with the different packets that he carried. All were there safely, his letters, his money. He trusted nobody, and he did not like having to trust the beggar. His feverish head and the ache in his bones told him that he could scarcely hope to get to Aberbrothock on foot. His boots were still wet, and a bruise on his hip that he had got in falling yesterday had begun to make itself felt. He propped himself against the wall and reached out for the water beside him. Watty had been some time away when the barn door opened, and the farm woman appeared on the threshold, considering him with suspicious disfavour. He dragged himself to his feet and bowed, as though he were standing upon an obesum carpet instead of upon a pallet of withered heather. The action seemed to confirm her distrust. Madam, said he, I have to thank you for a night's shelter and for this excellent refreshment. You are too good. I drink to you. He raised the broken delf bowl with a drain of water that remained in it. Being conscious of inhospitality, she was not sure how much irony lay in his words, and his face told her nothing. "'It's the last you'll get here,' said she. The more she looked at Flemington, the more she was impressed by his undesirability as a guest. She was one of those to whom anything uncommon seemed a menace. "'Madam, I notice that you dislike me. Why?' "'What are you?' she inquired after a pause, during which he faced her, smiling, his eyebrows raised. Oh, we are two noblemen, travelling for pleasure, said he. She crossed her arms, snorting. <laughs> she exclaimed contemptuously. 
I wish my good man was home. He'd sort the pair of you. If you think we have any design on your virtue, he continued, I beg you to dismiss the idea. I assure you, you are safe with us. We are persons of the greatest delicacy, and my friend is a musician of the first rank. I myself am what you see, your humble servant and admirer. You're a liar and a Frenchman, cried she. Her eyes blazed. A little more provocation, and she might have attacked him. At this moment Wattie's cart drove into the yard behind her, axle deep in the sea of mud and manure that filled the place. She turned upon the newcomer. She could not deal with Archie, but the beggar was a foe she could understand, and she advanced, a whirl of abuse, upon him. The yellow dog's growling rose, battling with her strident tones, and Archie, seeing the mischief his tongue had wrought, limped out, fearful of what might happen. "'Stand away from the dog-woman. He'll have the legs of you rugged off your henches, yet he gets hold of you,' roared Watty, as the yellow body leaped and bounded in the traces. Amid a hurricane of snarling and shouts he contrived, by plying his stick, to turn the animals and to get them out of the yard. Archie followed him, but before he did so he paused to turn to his enemy, who had taken shelter in the doorway of the barn. He could not take his hat off to her, because he had no hat to take off, having lost it on Inchbrayock Island, but he blew a kiss from the points of his fingers, with an air that almost made her choke. Watty, looking back over his shoulder, called angrily to him. He could not understand what he had done to the woman to move her to such a tempest of wrath, but he told himself that, in undertaking to escort Archie, he had made a leap in the dark. He would direct him to his cousin's house of entertainment in Upper Brothock, and return to his own haunts without delay. At the nearest point of road, the boy was standing with a sorry-looking nag that he held by the ear. A few minutes later they had parted, and the boy, made happy by the coin he had been given, was returning to the farm, while the beggar, who had also reaped some profit in the last twenty-four hours, watched his late companion disappearing down the road. When he was out of sight, he turned his own wheels in the direction of Brechin, and set off at a sober pace for that friendly town. He was singing to himself as he went, first because he owned the price of another bottle of whisky, secondly because he was delighted to be rid of Flemington, and thirdly because an inspiring idea had come to him. His dogs, by the time they drew him into Brechin, would have done two heavy days' work, and would deserve the comparative holiday he meant to give them. He would spend to-morrow in the town with his pipes, in the company of that congenial circle always ready to spring from the gutter on his appearance. Then, after a good day's rest, and when he should have collected a trifle, he would go on to Forfar and learn for certain whether Archie lived at Argy's, and who might be found there in his absence. His idea was to arrive at the house with the last tidings of the young man, to give an account of the attack on the venture, its surrender, Flemington's injury, and his own part in befriending him. It took some time, in those days of slow communication, for public news to travel so much as across a county, but even should the tale of the ship have reached Argy's, the news of Archie could scarcely have preceded him. He hoped to find someone, for preference an anxious mother, who would be sensible of how much he had done for her son, and there would be fresh profit there. And not only profit. There was something else for which the beggar hoped, though profit was his main object. He pictured some tender, emotional lady, from whose unsuspicious heart he might draw scraps of information that would fit into his own theories. He would try the effect of Logie's name, 
and there would be no harm in taking a general survey of Flemington's surroundings and picking up any small facts about him that he could collect. His own belief in Archie's double dealing grew stronger as he jogged along. No doubt that shrewd and unaccountable young man was driving a stiff trade. There was little question in his mind that the contents of the letter he had put into his hands by the alder clump had been sold to Captain James Logie, and that its immediate result had been the taking of the ship. He had learned from Archie's ravings that there had been a question of money between himself and Logie. The part that he could make nothing of was the suggestion, conveyed by Archie in the night, that he and the judge's brother had been fighting. "'Let me go, Logie,' he had cried out in the darkness, and the blow on his forehead, which was bleeding when he found him, proved recent violence. But, though he could not explain these puzzles, nor make them tally with his belief, his theory remained. Flemington was in league with Logie. For the present, he determined to keep his suspicions to himself. End of chapter 15